This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of tibial plateau fractures from the trauma section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Tibial plateau fractures are periarticular injuries of the proximal tibia frequently associated with soft tissue injury. Diagnosis is made with knee radiographs but frequently requires CT scan for surgical planning. Treatment is often surgical reduction and fixation in the acute setting versus delayed fixation after soft tissue swelling subsides. Now, let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, as far as demographics of tibial plateau fractures, there is a bimodal distribution, with males in their 40s after high-energy trauma and females in their 70s after falls. In terms of location, tibial plateau fractures can be unicondylar or bicondylar. In terms of frequency, lateral tibial plateau fractures are most common, followed by bicondylar tibial plateau fractures, and then finally the least common is medial tibial plateau fractures. Moving on to etiology, the mechanism of tibial plateau fractures is a varus slash valgus load with or without axial load. High energy injuries are frequently associated with soft tissue injuries as well. Low energy injuries are usually insufficiency fractures. In terms of associated conditions with tibial plateau fractures, the ones to know include meniscal tears, ACL injuries, compartment syndrome, and or vascular injury. So in terms of meniscal tears, you can have lateral meniscal tears or medial meniscal tears. Lateral meniscal tears are more common than medial meniscal tears and are associated with Schatzker II fracture patterns and are also associated with greater than 10 millimeter articular depression. Medial meniscal tears are most commonly associated with Schatzker IV fractures. ACL injuries are more common in Schatzker type 4 and type 6 fractures and specifically are seen approximately 25% of the time in those fracture patterns. Vascular injury is commonly associated with Schatzker 4 fracture dislocations. Now let's go over some relevant anatomy. We'll talk about osteology, muscles, and biomechanics. So starting with osteology, the lateral tibial plateau is convex in shape and is proximal to the medial plateau. The medial tibial plateau is concave in shape and is distal to the lateral tibial plateau. It's important to talk about the three-column concept when talking about the tibial plateau. So one column fracture is defined as an independent articular depression with a break in the column. A zero-column fracture is purely articular. Anteromedial plus posteromedial fractures are two-column fractures. And finally, anterolateral fractures plus separate posterolateral depression fractures are also two-column fractures. In terms of muscles, the anterior compartment musculature attaches to the anterolateral tibia, while the pes anserine attaches to the anteromedial tibia. As far as biomechanics, know that the medial tibial plateau bears 60% of the knee's load. Now let's talk about the classification of tibial plateau fractures, and the ones to know include the Schatzker classification and the Holland-Moore classification. The Schatzker classification is divided into six types. Type 1 is a lateral split fracture, Type 2 is a lateral split depressed fracture. Type 3 is a lateral pure depression fracture. Type 4 is a medial plateau fracture. Type 5 is a bicondylar fracture. And type 6 is a metaphyseal-diaphyseal disassociation. The whole and more classification is useful for true fracture dislocations, fracture patterns that do not fit into the Schatzker classification, which make up 10% of all tibial plateau fractures, and also fractures associated with knee instability. The whole and more classification of proximal tibia fracture dislocations is divided into five types. Type 1 is a coronal split fracture. Type 2 is an entire condylar fracture. Type 3 is a rim avulsion fracture of the lateral plateau. Type 4 is a rim compression fracture. And type 5 is a four-part fracture.
Moving on to the presentation of tibial plateau fractures, as we mentioned previously, there may be a history of high-energy trauma in young patients or low-energy falls in the elderly. Moving on to physical exam, in terms of inspection, be sure to look circumferentially to rule out an open injury. With respect to palpation, consider compartment syndrome when the compartments are firm and not compressible. In terms of varus valgus stress testing, any laxity of greater than 10 degrees indicates instability. Varus valgus stress testing is often difficult to perform given pain. Finally, in terms of neurovascular exam, any differences in pulse exam between extremities should be further investigated with ankle brachial index measurement. Moving on to imaging, recommended views on radiographs include an AP, lateral, and oblique. Keep in mind that the oblique is helpful to determine the amount of depression. Optional views include a plateau view, which is a 10-degree caudal tilt view. In terms of findings on AP, you may find a depressed articular surface, sclerotic band of bone indicating a compression fracture, and or abnormal joint alignment. On the lateral, remember that postromedial fracture lines must be recognized. A CT scan is important to identify articular depression and comminution. Findings may include lipohemarthrosis, which indicates an occult fracture. A CT scan is also helpful for fracture fragment orientation and surgical planning. Indications for MRI is not well established. However, it can be useful to determine meniscal and ligamentous pathology. Moving on to treatment of tibial plateau fractures, this can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes a hinged knee brace, partial weight bearing for 8 to 12 weeks, and immediate passive range of motion. Indications for this include a minimally displaced split or depressed fracture, low-energy fracture stable to varus valgus alignment, and in non-ambulatory patients. Operative options include external fixation slash elizaroff plus or minus limited open slash percutaneous fixation of the articular segment, ORIF, and arthroplasty. So starting with external fixation slash elizaroff plus or minus limited open slash percutaneous fixation of the articular segment, this is indicated for severe open fractures with marked contamination, as well as highly comminuted fractures where internal fixation is not possible. In terms of outcomes, there are unacceptably high malunion rates for this option and usually requires delayed arthroplasty in the setting of highly comminuted fractures in the elderly. RIF is indicated for an articular step-off of greater than 3 mm. It's also indicated for condylar widening greater than 5 mm, varus-valgus instability, all medial plateau fractures, and all bicondylar fractures. In terms of timing, you can use temporizing bridging external fixation with delayed RIF, which is indicated in the setting of significant soft tissue injury and in polytrauma cases. In terms of outcomes, restoration of joint stability is the strongest predictor of long-term outcomes. Note that postoperative infection after ORIF is associated with male gender, smoking, pulmonary disease, bicondylar fracture patterns, and an intraoperative time of over three hours. Note that timing of definitive fixation, that is before, during, or after relative to fasciotomy closure, does not increase the risk of infection. Finally, remember that there are worse results with ligamentous instability, menisectomy, as well as alteration of the limb mechanical axis of greater than 5 degrees. In terms of arthroplasty, as far as indications, you can consider this option in patients greater than 65 years old with osteoporotic bone. Outcomes include earlier time to weight bearing, however keep in mind that there are improved outcomes for primary total knee arthroplasty compared to total knee arthroplasty for failed ORIF. Now let's go over some of these management techniques in a bit more detail. We'll go over temporary external fixation, external fixation with limited internal fixation for definitive management, as well as open reduction and internal fixation. 
So starting with external fixation for temporary management, the technique will involve two 5mm half pins in the distal femur and two in the distal tibia. Axial traction will be applied to the fixator, and the fixator will be locked in slight flexion. The advantage of this option is to allow soft tissue swelling to decrease before definitive fixation, and it also decreases the rate of infection and wound healing complications. As far as findings, there may be a transient increase in leg compartment pressures during external fixator placement. This has not been shown to increase the risk of compartment syndrome. Moving on to external fixation with limited internal fixation for definitive management, the technique will involve reducing the articular surface either percutaneously or with small incisions. You will then stabilize the reduction with lag screws or wires. Keep in mind that you must keep the wires greater than 14 millimeters from the joint. Finally, you will apply an external fixator or hybrid ring fixation. In terms of post-operative care, you can begin weight-bearing when the callus is visible on radiographs, and this will usually remain in place for two to four months. The pros of this option is to minimize soft tissue insult, and it permits knee range of motion. The cons will be pin-side complications and inappropriately high malunion rates. Finally, let's talk about open reduction internal fixation. The approach can be with a lateral incision, which is the most common. Specifically, this will be a straight or a hockey stick incision anterolaterally from just proximal to the joint line to just lateral to the tibial tubercle. You can also approach this with a midline incision if planning to do a total knee arthroplasty in the future. Keep in mind, however, that this can lead to significant soft tissue stripping and should be avoided if possible. A posteromedial incision can be done in the interval between the pes anserinus and the medial head of the gastrocnemius. You can also use dual surgical incisions with dual plate fixation, which is indicated for bicondylar tibial plateau fractures. Finally, a posterior approach can be used for posterior shearing fractures. In terms of the reduction, be sure to restore the joint surface with direct or indirect reduction. You can fill the metaphyseal void with autogenous, allogenic bone graft, or bone graft substitutes. Keep in mind that calcium phosphate cement has high compressive strength for filling the metaphyseal void. In terms of internal fixation, remember that absolute stability constructs should be used to maintain the joint reduction. Screws may be used alone for simple split fractures as well as depression fractures that were elevated percutaneously. In terms of plate fixation, options include non-locked plates and locked plates. Non-locked buttress plates are best indicated for simple partial articular fractures in healthy bone. The advantages of locked plates are that they provide a fixed angle construct and there's less compression of the periosteum and soft tissue. Postoperatively, after open reduction internal fixation, patients should be given a hinged knee brace and allowed early passive range of motion. Know that gentle mechanical compression on repaired osteoarticular segments improves chondrocyte survival. Patients should be kept non-weight-bearing or partial weight-bearing for 8 to 12 weeks. Finally, let's end this review session talking about complications after tibial plateau fracture, specifically post-traumatic arthritis, and know that the rate of post-traumatic arthritis increases with meniscectomy during surgery, axial malalignment, intraarticular infection, and joint instability. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic has been tested on past exams. First question. Which of the following is the most significant risk factor for lateral meniscal tears associated with tibial plateau fractures? And the choices are 1. Age greater than 50. 2. Female sex. 3. Ipsilateral calcaneus fracture. 4. Greater than 10 millimeters of articular depression. And 5. Schatzker-1 fracture pattern. The correct answer to this question is 4, greater than 10 millimeters of articular depression. 
So significant depression of a lateral tibial plateau fracture has been shown to be associated with an increased risk of lateral meniscal tears. To quickly review, concomitant meniscal injury and tibial plateau fractures are well reported, with the incidence upon surgical evaluation noted to be approximately 30%. The incidence of lateral meniscal tears on MRI evaluation of tibial plateau injuries is notably higher, however, and has been reported as high as 91%. Of note, collateral or cruciate ligament rupture has also been reported with tibial plateau fractures, with the incidence greater than 75% on an MRI evaluation. Ringus et al. reviewed 85 patients with tibial plateau fractures and found that 32.9% of lateral plateau fractures had associated lateral meniscal tears. Depression of greater than 10 millimeters led to an eight-fold increase, while patients under 48 years old had a four-fold risk increase. Stahl et al. reviewed 602 patients with a tibial plateau fracture and noted a 30% overall concomitant meniscal tear incidence. These tears occurred more frequently in young males, specifically 33% of the patients studied, with peripheral rim tears seen in 83% of the patients studied, most commonly associated with split depression fractures seen in 45% of the patients studied. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, age greater than 50 is incorrect, as actually patients less than 48 have an increased risk of lateral meniscal tears associated with lateral tibial plateau fractures. Answer 2, female sex is incorrect, as actually males have an increased risk. Answer 3, ipsilateral calcaneus fracture is incorrect, as there is no published evidence that links calcaneus fracture to meniscal tear. And finally, answer 5, Schatzker 1 fracture pattern is incorrect, as a split depression or Schatzker 2 fracture pattern has a greater incidence than type 1 injuries. Moving on to the next question, which of the following concerning meniscal tears and tibial plateau fractures is true? And the choices are 1. Lateral meniscal tears are more common and occur with Schatzker 2 fractures, and open evaluation with division of the menisco-tibial ligaments is recommended. 2. Lateral meniscal tears are more common and occur with Schatzker 3 fractures, and open evaluation with division of the menisco-femoral ligaments is recommended. 3. Lateral meniscus tears are most common and occur with Schatzker 1 fractures, and open evaluation with division of the menisco-tibial ligaments is recommended. 4. Medial meniscal tears are most common and occur with Schatzker 2 fractures, and open evaluation with division of the menisco-tibial ligaments is recommended. And 5. Lateral meniscal tears are more common and occur with Schatzker 2 fractures, and these do not require acute treatment. The correct answer to this question is 1. Lateral meniscus tears are most common and occur with Schatzker 2 fractures, and open evaluation with division of the menisco-tibial ligaments is recommended. So lateral meniscus tears occur most commonly in young males with a lateral split depression tibial plateau fracture. In these cases, a submeniscal arthrotomy with direct meniscal evaluation should be performed to evaluate necessity for repair. Know that these tears occur most frequently in young males with peripheral rim tears most commonly associated with split depression fractures. Surgical treatment of the meniscal tear occurs after fracture is reduced and fixation is complete with an anterolateral approach. The joint is then exposed and the meniscus evaluated. For longitudinal tears, meniscal repair should be performed. Radial tears can be partially resected, but in rare cases, these can be repaired as well. Stahl et al. reviewed the operative notes and radiographs of 602 adults to determine type of tibial plateau fracture, mechanism of injury, intraoperative detection of a lateral meniscal tear, and operative repair slash partial resection of the meniscus itself. Lateral meniscal tears requiring operative repair were detected intraoperatively in 179 patients, or 30% of the patients studied. 
This could be broken down into 12% for pure lateral split fractures, 45% for split depression fractures with a p-value of less than 0.001, 18% for pure depression fractures, 22% for bicondylar fractures, and 26% for intraarticular plus shaft fractures. Ruiz Ilban et al. performed a study to determine the results of repair of meniscal tears found during arthroscopically assisted reduction and internal fixation, otherwise known as ARIF, of tibial plateau fractures. In a cohort of 51 tibial plateau fractures treated with ARIF, 15 associated meniscal tears in 15 knees in 14 patients were repaired. A second lick arthroscopy was performed in 13 knees at a mean of 14.2 months after the initial surgery. All patients had good or excellent clinical results. Second look arthroscopy confirmed complete healing in 92% of meniscal tears when performed. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 2, lateral meniscus tears are more common and occur with Schatzker 3 fractures and open evaluation with division of the meniscal femoral ligaments is recommended is incorrect as lateral meniscal tears are more common with Schatzker 2 fractures. Answer 3, lateral meniscus tears are most common and occur with Schatzker 1 fractures, and open evaluation with division of the meniscotibial ligaments is recommended, is also incorrect, as lateral meniscal tears are more common with Schatzker 2 fractures. Answer 4, medial meniscus tears are most common and occur with Schatzker 2 fractures, and open evaluation with division of the meniscotibial ligaments is recommended, is incorrect, as lateral meniscal tears are more common than medial with Schatzker 2 fractures. Finally, answer 5, lateral meniscus tears are most common and occur with Schatzker 2 fractures, and these do not require acute treatment is incorrect, as lateral meniscal tears may benefit from acute treatment at the time of fracture fixation. And moving on to the next question, you are called to evaluate a 32-year-old man with knee pain after being struck as a pedestrian. You recognize the fracture as a Schatzker 4 tibial plateau fracture. Which of the following statements is most accurate? And the choices are 1. A fracture dislocation must be suspected as the femur follows the displaced lateral tibial plateau. 2. This fracture may often be seen with medial meniscal and anterior cruciate ligament injuries. 3. Open reduction internal fixation with a lateral plating is the construct of choice. 4. Open reduction internal fixation with bicondylar plating is the construct of choice. And 5. Vascular injuries are rare with this type of fracture. The correct answer to this question is 2. This fracture may often be seen with medial meniscal and anterior cruciate ligament injuries. So of the choices that we mentioned regarding Schatzker 4 tibial plateau fracture, the most accurate is that it may often be seen with medial meniscal and anterior cruciate ligament injuries. To quickly review, while the lateral tibial plateau is smaller and convex, the medial plateau is larger and concave, resulting in an eccentric load distribution in which the medial plateau bears approximately 60% of the knee's load. The relative osseous strength of the medial plateau, the valgus anatomic axis of the lower extremity, and the susceptibility of the leg to a medially directed force all result in the increased prevalence of lateral-sided injuries in Schatzker 1 and 2 fracture patterns in low-energy fractures. High-energy plateau injuries result in increased less predictable fracture patterns that are often comminuted and involve the medial plateau in Schatzker 4 through 6 fracture patterns and may be associated with medial meniscus, ACL, and vascular injuries. Bennett et al. reviewed tibial plateau fractures and associated soft tissue injuries. They reported a 56% rate of associated soft tissue injuries in their series, with the most common being medial, lateral collateral ligaments, and menisci. They observed that Schatzker 4 and 6 plateau fractures were associated with the highest rate of soft tissue injuries. They recommended pre- and post-fixation stress testing to diagnose collateral and cruciate ligament injuries. 
Bergson et al. reviewed high-energy tibial plateau fractures. They reported that high-energy injuries can lead to comminuted fractures with significant osseous, soft tissue, and neurovascular injury, whereas lower-energy injuries result in unilateral depression-type fractures. They emphasized that treatment be directed at safeguarding tissue vascularity and restoring joint congruity and the mechanical axis of the limb. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, a fracture dislocation must be suspected as the femur follows the displaced lateral tibial plateau is incorrect as a fracture dislocation must be suspected as the femur follows the displaced medial, not lateral, tibial plateau. Answer 3, open reduction internal fixation with the lateral plating is the construct of choice. And answer 4, open reduction internal fixation with bicondylar plating is the construct of choice are both incorrect, as ORIF with a medial buttress plate is the definitive construct often used for Schatzker 4 fractures. Finally, answer 5, vascular injuries are rare with this type of fracture is incorrect, as vascular injuries are commonly associated with Schatzker 4 plateau fractures. And moving on to the final question, in treating a lateral split depression type tibial plateau fracture, which of the following adjuncts has been shown to have the least articular surface subsidence when used to fill the bony void? And the choices are 1. Crushed cancellous allograft, 2. Hydroxyapatite, 3. Calcium phosphate cement, 4. Autogenous iliac crest, and 5. Bisected diaphyseal humeral allograft. The correct answer to this question is 3, calcium phosphate cement. So in treating tibial plateau fractures, calcium phosphate has been shown to have the least amount of articular subsidence on follow-up examinations. The study by Russell et al. noted a significantly increased rate of subsidence at 12 months with autograft as compared to calcium phosphate cement in Schatzker types 1 through 6. The study by Labenhofer et al. noted improved radiographic outcomes and earlier weight-bearing with usage of calcium phosphate cement. That's all for this review about tibial plateau fractures. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already, be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.